Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithal. Wellwithal believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithal's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithal. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Seattle Seahawks star defensive end Michael Bennett went public last month accusing Las Vegas police officers of racial profiling and excessive force. Police dispute Bennett's account, but the video of the arrest seems to support Bennett's claim that it occurred because he was simply being a black man in the wrong place at the wrong time. Other incidents like this and the sad litany of deaths of unarmed black men at the hands of police are what inspired the protest in St. Louis and the football field with Colin Kaepernick. Now a self-described renegade prosecutor turned law professor has put a name to it. Georgetown law professor Paul Butler offers a frank analysis in his book, Chokehold, Policing Black Men. Later in the show, the crashing of waterfalls, the babbling of brooks, the delicate buzzing of crickets and critters. Berkeley professor Steve Wilkes is capturing it all. Professor Wilkes and his project, Hear the Forest. But first, joining me in the studio, Paul Butler, a former federal prosecutor and now law professor at Georgetown University and the author of Chokehold, Policing Black Men. He's been featured on 60 Minutes and in the Washington Post and other major publications, including the New York Times and the Boston Globe. Welcome, Professor Butler. Hey, it's great to be here. I'm glad to have you. Also joining me, Adam Voss, also a former prosecutor. Voss is the former assistant district attorney in the juvenile division of the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office here in Massachusetts. Voss won the book award from the Mass Black Judges Conference in 2007. In 2013, he was recognized with the Access to Justice Section Council Prosecutor of the Year Award. His February 2016 TED Talk is called A Prosecutor's Vision for a Better Justice System. Hello again, Adam. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, this is a sobering topic. You really put it there for us, Paul Butler, to wrestle with. But let me start this way. We may recognize the chokehold as a method by which a victim's neck is tightly gripped as to limit breathing or to cut off breathing. And the method right now is illegal for most police departments to use. It was at the core of the death of Eric Garner, who was grabbed by police while selling illegal cigarettes. And in the scuffle, to handcuff him, police officer Daniel Pantaleo put his head in a chokehold. Let's take a listen from that moment. Don't touch me. Came over. Don't touch me. Put your hand behind your back. You can't breathe. 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 It's still chilling, the audio from cell phone footage taken at the time. So, Paul Butler, you're using the chokehold maneuver as a metaphor to explain a larger issue. Please explain. 
You know, as many times as I've watched that video of Eric Garner being choked to death and and heard it, it's still so difficult. The reason that chokeholds are against police regulations is because the police are trying to get you to do what they say, but you can't because you cannot breathe. And as I thought about it, that's a good metaphor for the black male experience with the criminal justice system. The police are pushing us around, trying to get us to do what they want. When I was a prosecutor, I felt like it was my job to lock up black men. And so by chokehold, I mean the way that all of us are constructed as thugs. And then the law and society respond. So it could be everyday social practices. In the book, I talk about All these stories brothers have about people not wanting to sit next to us on the train or a bus. Uh, There's a sports journalist, J.J. Andenade, who jokes that on Southwest Airlines, where you can sit wherever you want, there's a black man in the aisle seat and a black man in the window seat, and nobody chooses that middle seat. He he says brothers like Southwest because we get more leg room. But of course, there's more serious aspects to it, including the police being way more likely to shoot unarmed black men than anybody else. So, Adam, you're a former prosecutor. How do you hear Paul Butler's explanation of the broader metaphor for the chokehold? To me, it it rings true. It's hard to disagree with, with Paul when you see constantly images of interactions with black men and the police ending in the way that they do. Um, that is not to say that police don't have a difficult job. That is not to say that there are millions of, of interactions with police and human beings that don't result in a death or don't result in a some sort of scuffle. But there are plenty of instances where black men are interacting with police that you'll never hear about, which is what causes Ferguson. Ferguson wasn't about Mike Brown. It was about the indignities suffered over generations between the police and the African-American community. And so we need to really talk about the larger issues, of course, the shootings and those things, but really... Uh, have a larger conversation about what Paul is talking about, the little uh, microaggressions that happen, not because anyone's inherently bad, but the culture and the implicit bias and their conditioning growing up to fear us is what, in, in my mind, and I think Paul would agree with me, leads to this outcome. And Paul, what you're saying is, just so that we're very clear, that this is not about, I don't like you, you don't like me. This is about policy. Let me quote from the book. In New York, Baltimore, Ferguson, Chicago, Los Angeles, Cleveland, San Francisco, and many other cities, the U.S. Justice Department and federal courts have stated that the official practices, the official practices, you write, of police departments include violating the rights of African Americans. The police kill, wound, pepper spray, beat up, detain, frisk, handcuff, and use dogs against blacks in circumstances in which they do not do so, do the same to white people. And you end by, in this segment by saying it is the moral responsibility of every American when armed agents of the state are harming people in our names to ask why. Focusing on black men for stop and frisk, for searches, for arrests, for little petty stuff, that's what you call police work. So when you look at misdemeanors, which are about 80 percent of all arrests, These are things like jumping the turnstile at a subway, jaywalking, having a beer on your porch. 
By and large, white folks don't get arrested for those crimes. It's mainly African-Americans, and it's not a function of people being more likely to commit the crime. Misdemeanors are the kinds of things that are generated by police presence. So more people get arrested on Wednesday afternoons in New York than any other day, not because crime goes up, but because there's more cops out looking for misdemeanor arrests and looking specifically at black men. And so do we have a legitimate concern about serious violent crime? Yes, we do. And in Chocode, I break down how black men are disproportionately at risk for causing harm and being victims of violent crime. But when we look at the vast majority of police interactions with African-American men, they're not about rape or robbery or homicide. Uh, They're about that little petty stuff that just as many white boys are out there doing. But when all the focus is on African-American and, to an extent, Latino and Native people, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, They focus on us, and so there are many more of us who are locked up. Well, Adam, you make that point in your TED Talk because I want to remind our listeners that both of you are former prosecutors. You are involved in the law that your job would have been to look at many of these people and assess whether or not they should go to jail. Adam's like the younger, better-looking version of me. (laughs) Okay. But, Adam, what your point was is that that is the path by which so many of these young black men, what Paul has just described, these misdemeanor crimes, put them on a path, and then they're just— involved in the criminal justice system and facing the chokehold that Paul is talking about. Yes. People have this notion that once you're arrested by the police, the downhill just goes from there. And um, what they miss is there's actually a stopgap. It was intended to be a check on police. And it somehow has become an extension of the police where police and prosecutors are working in tandem to prove guilt as opposed to police making an arrest and prosecutors taking an objective view of those facts, including the reasons that the police stopped the person. What was great about my experience as a prosecutor is I had the opportunity to stop uh, a lot of that from happening. Was it perfect? Was it everything? No. But when you're at absolute worst, which is what a lot of these communities are in, getting up to bad saves a lot of people. And oftentimes I spend my time now encouraging young law students to think about going into a career, young law students who care about social justice, young law students who are coming into law school in the wake of Black Lives Matter, in the wake of the queer movement, in the wake of Dakota Pipeline, who have questions about these issues, to go to the prosecutor's office to exercise those questions and exercise that discretion. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and I am here with Paul Butler and Adam Voss, and both of them are two former prosecutors. Butler is now a Georgetown law professor, and Voss is a criminal justice activist. And we're discussing the sobering reality of the criminal justice system, which appears to target black men, what Butler has detailed in his book, Chokehold, Policing Black Men. Paul Butler, I'd like you to read a section entitled, When Actual Innocence or Guilt Isn't a Big Deal. Order maintenance policing is almost exclusively directed at African-American and Latino men. Brothers in New York know what it means if you are walking on the street drinking from a cup or plastic bottle and a cop approaches you. You're supposed to hand the cup or bottle to the cop so he or she can smell it to see if it contains alcohol. The purpose of this humiliation is that the cops are looking for an excuse to arrest you. The effect of this humiliation is to make you hate the police. 
I thought that was important because what we're talking about, as you've mentioned, is the thug effect of black men. And then we have these increasing small interactions that are negative and humiliating, which then add to this tension between two groups of folks, the one most likely to be surveilled, frankly, by police. That's a never-ending cycle, Paul. And here's why it's bad (laughs) policing. You know, I'm still a prosecutor at heart. I want communities to be safe. I want folks to feel like they can trust the people who are supposed to serve and protect them. But if the cops are walking up to you on the street smelling what you're drinking, you're not going to want to cooperate with them. You know, the way that police make serious cases like robbery and homicide, I always tell folks, you know, don't think of the cops running down the street after folks chasing them down. Think of law and order where they go from one meeting, one office, one house to another, talking to folks. And if you hate the police, which is the way a lot of people in communities of color feel, you're not going to talk to them. You're not going to want to be seen with them. And at the end of the day, that makes the police less effective. So this is certainly about civil rights. It's about treating everybody with respect and dignity. It's about equal justice under the law. But it's also importantly, about public safety. It's about every American feeling secure in their neighborhoods. So how do you answer the question, what is the evidence? that? Give me some hard evidence as there's a systemic targeting of black men in the criminal justice system. So every time the Justice Department does one of these investigations of police departments, they find that the problem isn't bad apple cops. The problem is that the police, as policy, focus on black men. And that's why we have these tragic statistics that one in three young African-American men uh, is in the justice system, either locked up on probation or parole or under arrest with a trial coming up. And when you look at the kind of crime that people get arrested for, Uh, Let's look at drug crimes, for example. Everybody knows, especially people like me who spend a lot of time on college campuses, that black folks don't use drugs any more than anybody else. Selling's the same thing, like a lot of social transactions. It's segregated. White folks report buying drugs from other white people. Blacks the same way. So African-Americans, about 13% of people who do the crime, look at who's in jail for that, 60% black. 13% of people who do the crime 60% of people who do the time. So that's selective law enforcement focused on African-Americans. I always say if the police spend as much time looking at my colleagues at Georgetown Law School as they do looking at young brothers, there'd be a lot of Georgetown law faculty under the criminal justice system. So take what Paul just said, Adam, and then put in the context all of these recent incidents that some more Americans may be aware of now because they're on video. We're still in the midst of the protests in St. Louis after the death of Anthony Lamar Smith. The officer was acquitted of first-degree murder. This is after his DNA was found on the gun, and he's on camera saying, I'm going to kill this MF, don't you know it? But he was in fear of his life? This is what lots of folks don't understand. And then when you hear what Paul has just put out, it makes perfect sense. Or it seems to. Yeah, Yeah. it's a vicious, vicious cycle 
that were in that didn't start in Ferguson or Charlottesville. It started with the enslavement of black people and the and the racialization of black people once they started to get their rights back. This idea that they were a violent, brooding group that was going to attack everyone and take back their rights. And that has been an insidious truth that has been part of the culture forever. And as Paul was saying, it's not bad apple cops, it's a culture, and that's because the culture is in communities where violent crime is happening. They are conditioned to fear black men who commit violent crime, and I think that juries are prepared to believe that because somewhere in the dark recesses of their bodies, they believe that too, unconsciously, subconsciously. I'm sure consciously they tell you, no, I have black friends and I love black entertainers, but I think jurors have have the same understanding of why you might fear a black person has a gun because of the images that were sold and because of the way the media portrays black-on-black crime. The interesting part of it is, goes back to what Paul was saying, violence, it's not the product of black people hating each other. It is a small percentage of black people understanding in these communities that no one is going to cooperate with the police. And so I can wantonly commit violent crime and not get caught for it because nobody is going to snitch on me. As a community, we need to stop thinking about violence as a criminal justice issue. Violence is in most police places in the country. We're not safe in our communities because we have more police. We're safe because we have education and employment and health care. And all of these things that make us safe have nothing to do with the police and nothing to do with jail. Violence is the result of trauma that is not being treated. And until we look at it that way, until we make it pathology and treat it, we're not going to fix any problems. You know, it's, it's such an important point that Adams made because people say, okay, I get it. Maybe we should think about this as a public health issue, but that's going to cost so much money. Well, you know what? In cities around this country, they have what's called million-dollar blocks. Call it that because just on that one block, that's how much the government is spending to lock people up. And these are almost exclusively in African-American and Latino neighborhoods. So I always say, what if? But what if we took that million dollars we're spending to lock up young folks in this one block and spend it on job training, on better schools, on health care, on trauma care for what you go through being a young black woman or man in the hood? Uh, and by the way, there are studies that have determined that it's it's equal to PTSD from war. Continue. And as <laughs> Tupac says, and then they wonder why we're crazy, right? Right. right. Here's the other part, um, the book that sort of gave me pause. You talk about that civil rights laws that everybody looks to as an instrument to have made things better really hasn't been that effective um, when we start talking about this kind of systemic policy. You know, when we look at the Supreme Court, since the 1960s, it's been on this project to give the police more and more power. And so a few years ago, there was a case in which a young black man, 19-year-old kid in Atlanta, was speeding. Cops tried to pull him over. He should have stopped, but he didn't. So the police start this chase, this high-speed chase, and when they can't make him stop, they end up deliberately ramming his car down a ravine. Car plunges, bursts into flames. The kid lives, but he's a quadriplegic. The issue before the Supreme Court was, can the police do this? Can they use deadly force when they're trying to stop somebody from speeding? They had his license plate, so they could have identified him. 
court said that's perfectly constitutional since he was creating a danger by driving so fast the police could literally kill him to stop the danger. Now, mind you, they could have also stopped the danger by stopping the chase. Court said they didn't have to do that. And so I call this superpower. Talk about a number of cases. Another case real quick, woman in Texas, she got locked up for not wearing a seatbelt. She told the Supreme Court, well, this is weird because even if I'm guilty of that crime in Texas, I can't go to jail. Maximum fine is $50. Court said you can be arrested for anything, even if you can't be incarcerated when you're guilty of that crime. So that's why the police were able to stop Eric Garner on the streets of Staten Island for selling a single tobacco cigarette. And when he resisted, as they claim he did, that's why they were able to put him down to kill him again. And under the law, a lot of this conduct is perfectly legal. Well, that's also why Michael Bennett, who I mentioned at the beginning, was detained. Let's hear this audio from the footage of, this is NFL player Michael Bennett. He was detained on the Las Vegas Strip just this year, August 26th. And this video and audio comes courtesy of TMZ Sports. And now we've seen uh, the other attending video. There was some that was released, and it was like, yes, yeah, see, this the policeman is right. Then we saw the other video in which you literally standing there, and, you know, they have the right to, as you just said, Paul Butler, wrestle him to the ground and, and humiliate him in this way. And he literally was just walking from a club, paying attention, as one does on the Las Vegas Strip. And they had no reason to stop him. They don't even claim that they had a reason to stop him. And here's what I mean by it's about targeting and humiliating black men. The cops had to know that he hadn't done anything. You know, last week I was at the Congressional Black Caucus Conference, and Congresswoman Wilson, her son, got up and talked about being stopped in um, Florida. He was dressed in a suit. He's a school administrator. And the cops treated him just the way they treated me when they locked me up, even though I was a prosecutor. So part of it is just to make you feel like a boy. Uh, They don't actually call you the N-word. They don't call you a thug all the time. But they sure make you feel like that. And again, it's because they think that they have to dominate the streets. They have what President Obama called a warrior mentality, us against them. And what we need, President Obama said, is a guardian mentality, not cops thinking of themselves as in one gang uh, against a gang of young black men. That's my guest, Paul Butler. He is a former prosecutor and now a Georgetown law professor. And his book is Chokehold, Policing Black Men. I'm also here with Adam Voss, who is also a former prosecutor. We are discussing the chokehold, as Paul Butler has defined it more broadly in his book. So civil rights legislation is not uh, blunting. We see the court system seeming to say police, Adam, have free reign. You both are not only just former prosecutors, you're former black prosecutors. I'm going to get back to Paul's mentioning of his being arrested. But some of these experiences of just living your life and having interaction with police when people don't know you're a prosecutor has to also happen to you. It does, and it mm-hmm. has. Several times I was a prosecutor for almost nine years, and over the course of that nine years, it happened 
uh, more frequently than I would I would like to admit. And it's funny when you are downtown with a suit on, how you were treated, and then when you go back to your community, and you no, no longer have your suit on, how you and were we treated. And we should add, Adam doesn't look like what you think a prosecutor looks like. <laughs> well, it's true. Adam, you got some dreads going on. Go. Yeah. <laughs> um, one morning I was taking a, a young woman to the airport, and I live in a predominantly black community, and, and she was a white woman. We hadn't gotten a half mile from my house before an unmarked state police car had pulled me over. And while the one officer came and spoke to me and was talking to me about the reason that he pulled me over, which was it went from registration to inspection sticker, I could hear the other officer asking the young woman if she was okay mm. and if there was anything that she needed and then asked her to get out of the car for her ID and asked me to get out of the car for my ID. And there I am very early in the morning as people are commuting to work, people that are going to Boston, the city that I work in, a very small city, and I'm standing out on the side of the road in a hooded sweatshirt talking to a state trooper with a young woman standing on the other side of my truck. The optics are just bad. Mm. It's just one example of many uh, indignities. And it, again, it's not the, the getting pulled over, the getting stopped. It's the momentary stuff that you have to put up with at the airport. It's the momentary stuff that you have to put up with just walking down the street. I don't want people to leave the conversation thinking that, you know, all the police that I worked with were, were bad apples. I had uh, many officers that I worked with that, that wanted something good. I think Paul's capturing of how the policy and the culture of these offices is what drives that conduct. Well, also, Paul, let's get back to your, your being arrested. So because you spend some time in this book in a chapter called If You Catch a Case, Act Like You Know, because you're looking at your arrest and involvement from both the prosecutorial viewpoint and of a black man brought into the system. Yeah, so this is real talk from a prosecutor who caught a case and beat it. And I want other people, especially African-American men, to have the benefit of my inside knowledge. So my case was this silly little dispute over a parking space. And like Adam, I didn't have on my prosecutor's suit. I had on my jeans and my T-shirt. Cops rolled up and just arrested me because a neighbor said that I had pushed her. It was ridiculous. Other neighbors were saying, don't listen to her. But the cops just saw a young black man and took me in. People say, well, did you tell him that you're a prosecutor to try to prevent myself from going to jail? I certainly did. Cops said, so you probably know this already. You have the right to remain silent. Wow. Anything you say can or will be used against you. But here's the thing, Callie. I'm not going to tell folks exactly how it turned out because I want people to buy the book, but I'll give you a hint. Things worked out fine for me. And the reason things worked out fine is because I hired the best lawyer in town, Michelle Roberts, who now is the director of the National Basketball Players Association, that time known as the best trial lawyer in D.C. Things worked out fine for me because I had legal skills. I literally prosecuted people in the courtroom where I was being prosecuted. Things worked out well for me because I had social standing. We made sure the jury knew I was a lawyer. The other thing, other reason things worked out fine for me is because I was innocent. But when I thought about it, that didn't seem like the most important reason. And that's the truth of this. Now, here's here's the other thing that I think we should mention. There is a bipartisan effort, has been for some years, to bring criminal justice reform to the floor of Congress. 
we've got some very conservative folks on one side and some other folks on the other end of the political spectrum working, been working to try to look at a system and come up with something that can reform it. You say reform, it's not working. That's not the way to go. Look, I, I'm championing a lot of the movement on this issue. Progressives have been making good arguments to people on the right for a long time, arguments that they ought to understand. Uh, fiscal conservatives, you talk about inefficient government spending, locking up two and a half million people, at least $30,000 a year. Again, think of how much better more efficiently we could use that money. How about settling cases with police officers in cities across the country for millions and millions of dollars exactly. for these cases? Exactly. Mm-hmm. That would save a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Our, our faith-based conservative friends who believe in redemption and second chances, mm-hmm. Rand Paul, I've worked with his office because libertarians are concerned with how much power police have. So I'm thankful that some of these efforts at building this multiracial, bipartisan project to not reform but transform our criminal justice system. I'm thankful that because of the work of activists and the movement for black lives, because of of scholars like Michelle Alexander and the new Jim Crow, uh, because of brothers like Adam and other people who've worked inside the system, exposing it for all of its cruelty and inhumanity. Um, I I think this effort is catching fire. Adam, what do you say to people um, who say, well, this conversation is interesting, but it doesn't affect me, so why should they care? I get this question often and actually have to remind people why they should care. Uh, People don't articulate that, that they don't care because it doesn't affect them. But the way to think about it is this. Aside from what Paul just said uh, about tax dollars, 12 million people went through our jails last year at a and an average length of 23 days of stay, and an average cost of $50 a person. 95% of those people ended up with no conviction or, or jail time. And so we just warehoused 95% of people for 23 days at $50 a day, 12 million people. You, you do the math, and it's absurd how much we're spending. That is coming from your tax dollars, and it always has been. I think if people saw not what they currently pay in taxes, but what they would be paying in taxes if the criminal justice system looked differently, people would start listening. But when we say those things, people can't quantify it because it's, it's not like they've seen it affecting their tax dollars. Beyond that, and this is where I really hope people um, think about mass incarceration in a different way, you are cheating yourself of the relationship, the diversity of ideas, uh, the creativity, the skills of 2.3 million of our citizens. You don't know who is sitting in those jails and prisons. You don't know what cure could come out of there, what next great book could come out of there, who could rescue someone in there. And we have this really bad habit of painting anyone who commits a crime as a criminal and forget the period of our life between the time of 16 and 25. Paul touched on it about his experience at Georgetown, Uh, but I encourage people to think about when they were in college, when they were in professional school, even when they were first out in their first jobs and what people got into on Friday nights. And ask yourself, what would start happening if the police were present and locking them up? How long would we have to wait for reform if those folks were getting arrested and their futures were being destroyed? Last question to both of you. The nation's top lawyer is Jeff Sessions. He's law and order times 10, not interested in restorative justice, reform of any kind, 
very interested and has been rolling back those small steps toward criminal justice reform. I'd like a response from each of you. For me, the positive thing about Jeff Sessions is that he sits at the top of the federal government and that uh, the prison population that we have now and a lot of the police practices that we're talking about are very, very local. And other than money, which is an important factor, Jeff Sessions doesn't have a lot of control over what they're doing. The other thing is because of Jeff Sessions' statements about what he wants federal law enforcement to do, you've actually seen a response from many communities, not just progressive communities like Boston and New York, but you see communities in rural Wisconsin and in northern Texas saying, we're not, this isn't what we're about. We are here for our local communities. And we're going to protect our local communities. I think, again, it's not the policies or the mandates coming from anyone. It's the system and the culture. And until we start getting the people in um, that we need, getting them some training on de-escalation, getting them some training on trauma, getting them some training on addiction, we're going to continue to see this narrative. Paul? So you said Jeff Sessions is for law and order, but he's not for law and order for rich white dudes. He's not going after the bankers and corporate swindlers. He's going after the most vulnerable folks in our country, low-income people of color. But at the end of the day, I'm not worried about Jeff Sessions. I've got faith in my community, in this movement for black lives, and people of goodwill, and especially in my brothers. Thank you both very much. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Paul Butler is a law professor at Georgetown University, a former federal prosecutor, and the author of Chokehold, Policing Black Men. And Adam Voss is a former assistant district attorney in the juvenile division of the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office here in Massachusetts. Coming up, mapping the White Mountain National Forest through nature sounds. One Berkeley professor got the chance to do that just this summer. We speak to Steve Wilkes about his auditory adventures in the mountains of New Hampshire. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 